Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. I'm always looking for guests who can bring you uncommon and useful information, and I happen to find today's guest literally living less than a mile from me and teaching at my alma mater. Yuri Nisi is a behavioral economics professor at the Rady School of Management at the University of California, San Diego, and the author of the new bestseller, Mixed Signals, How Incentives Really Work. Now, if you've just heard the word incentives and instinctively asked yourself how this topic is a fit for the regular themes we cover on this show, well, Yuri's book really is about human nature and what motivates human behavior. Take giving blood, for example. Because hospitals are always in great need for blood, they're willing to pay at least $600 to blood banks for every unit they acquire. So if you were in charge of finding ways to motivate more people to give blood, you might immediately think to pay them for doing it. Take some of that $600 and reward them for their effort. But paying people to give blood proves to be one of the worst choices we could make because people who generally give blood do so in order to be helpful to others, to be a good person. The irony is that while giving them money negates all the good feelings they have about giving blood, giving them an inexpensive coffee mug saying, quote, I gave blood at my local blood bank, unquote, proves to be a great reward. And the reason is because when it sits on someone's desk, it signals to others that they are a generous and thoughtful person. This is just one of the myriad examples Neasy cites in his book to show that incentives send powerful signals that aim to influence behavior. But often, especially when it comes to workplace incentives, there's a conflict between what a company intends with their incentives and the behavior they actually motivate. Throughout my career, I saw how companies routinely design incentive and recognition plans that went awry. They'd emphasize the importance of teamwork while designing incentives for individual success, or they'd herald the importance of innovation while punishing failure. Even if you are never asked to create an incentive plan yourself, Yuri's insights are still rather unique and useful. Every day, people you interact with have incentives in place to motivate their behavior. In the case of a salesperson getting a far larger commission for selling you one product instead of another, or a doctor who earns a bonus for every test they order you to take, Knowing more about how incentives are designed, not to mention the psychology behind them, will surely prove valuable and expensive. And with that as background, let me welcome my neighbor and our podcast guest, Yuri Nisi. Thank you. It's great to be here. Well, I was hoping to do this in person since you live <laughs> less than a mile away from me. But uh, unfortunately, we couldn't make it work from a technological standpoint, so we'll have to do it this way. You know, the foundational argument of your book is that sometimes incentive plans send mixed signals and achieve the opposite of what they were intended for. In other words, the behaviors management says it once and the behavior incentives actually signal end up in conflict. So. As we start things off, give us a couple of real-world examples of incentive schemes that you've seen that unintentionally sent mixed signals. Exactly like you said, key thing to understand about incentives is that it's not just the incentive, the money, or whatever it is that you're giving. It's also the signal that you're sending about what's important for you. So think about a company that tells you, we care only about quality, the customer satisfaction, we want you to do everything like that. 
but then incentivize you for quantity. So instead of uh, giving you some kind of encouragement to care about quality, they incentivize only quantity. You are going to focus on quantity for two reasons. One is that you really want to get the incentives, that helps. And the second is that you really want to be good at your job. And apparently, if the management decided to pay you for quantity, that's what they care about. And that's what being good at your job means. How do we miss this so often? I think that there are a couple of reasons. The first one is that people have this belief that all incentives are created equal. Very often I go to companies and they tell me, oh, we tried incentives already and they didn't work. And to them, I usually say, look, it's like saying, you know, going to a bad Japanese restaurant and concluding that Japanese food is bad. No, we just went to a bad restaurant. The same is true about incentives. It's not true that incentives don't work. Incentives clearly work. It just didn't work the way you wanted and because you did something wrong. So that's one mistake that people make, thinking that all incentives are created equal. The second is not understanding the message that they're sending with the incentives. That's something that is really important because if you don't control it, if you don't manage it, you might be sending the mixed signal problem that I'm talking about. And the third one is to really use empirical, use data in order to evaluate what you did. So I'm working on incentives for many, many years now, and I think I'm quite good at it. But I very often make mistakes when I design it. Mistakes in the sense that I don't anticipate how people will game the incentives, what people will understand. But that's easy to fix if you are constantly trying to learn from the incentives and from the reaction of the other side. And you do it by collecting data. So very much like A-B testing that companies online do. Just give the incentives to some of your clients, don't give it to others, and see what's the impact of that, and then look for ways to tweak it and improve it such that you'll get to something that works the way you want it to work. Years ago, by coincidence, I was responsible for creating incentives for an entire bank, and that meant not just the management teams, but the individuals that were actually selling products. And one of the big takeaways from my experience of doing that is let's assume that there are seven things that you want people to do generally, seven products you want them to focus on, seven services combined, something like that. Let's just say it's that simple. What you pay for of those seven, you get far more than you ever imagined. And what you don't pay for, you get far less than you ever imagined. Does that match your experience? Completely. And I think one of the mistakes that people make is thinking, oh, I'm going to get what I paid for and the other things will not change. Like the example with the quality and quantity. I'll incentivize quantity and the quality will not go down. Well, no, you're wrong. It's not in your example. It's not that you're going to have seven things and you incentivize number six and only number six will change. No, people will get a signal that number six is more important and they will invest much more effort in number six at the cost of the other um, elements that you care about. Do you have any other examples that you can give us that are just glaring that companies have actually implemented, thinking that they were setting it up really well? So the message of the book is that incentives tell a story. And here's an example. I'll give the the old example and then a very recent one. So think about Coca-Cola. At some point, the CEO understood that they can put thermometers in the vending machine such that it can tell you when it's a cold day and when it's a hot day. And his idea was something that he probably learned in his Econ 101 class, which is called price discrimination. When the demand is higher, people want the product more, you can increase the price. Many companies do it. Airlines do it. Hotels do it. It's very common. 
So his idea was that say that the regular price is $1. On a hot day, they're going to bump the price to $1.50, $1.50. That makes a lot of economic sense because of the demand side. However, it of course got many people upset because people thought that that's kind of taking advantage of them, right? So you are taking advantage. When you can, you raise the price and because of that, we suffer. That was the story that people heard. Whereas the story that he could have told was the regular price is $1.50 and on cold days, we're going to give you a 50 cent discount. Mm-hmm. It's a very different story. Now the story is I'm nice to you. When I can, I give you a discount. A more relevant example of this is uh, what AMC theaters just did. Mm-hmm. So AMC figured out that it's not optimal for them to charge the same price for all seats. Some seats are more in higher demand than others. So people don't want to sit on the first row or on the sides. And what they did is increase the price for tickets in the middle, the tickets on demand, which is exactly the same mistake as the Coca-Cola CEO did. Of course, people were upset with them. It's enough that it's cost so much money to, the tickets are so expensive, the popcorn is so expensive. Now you're also bumping the price for the best seats. You are really evil. Instead, they should have said, look, the situation is such that because of inflation, because of everything, we pay more We need to increase the prices. We're sorry for that. We don't want it, but we have to. But now we're going to help the people that cannot afford it. We're going to offer cheaper tickets. If you're willing to sit on the first row, for example, it's going to cost you less. Right? So exactly like the Coca-Cola example, it's the same, exact same incentives, exact same price, but with a very different story and very different uh, reaction from the customers. So the first story, the Coca-Cola story, is in your book. And when I was reading it, it seemed so obvious. It seemed so self-evident that the minute you raised prices by 50 cents on a hot summer day, that you were going to offend people who had been buying it for a dollar and saw this bait and switch, if you will. How come CEOs who are running big companies don't have the empathy or don't have the ability to play out an incentive to see how it would work before they would make such a strategic move and then get all the backlash. Isn't it amazing that they did? (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, all these companies have CEO and CFO and whatever, CEO, all the C numbers, they need one for common sense. That's the one that is missing in many companies. Someone that will look at it and say, hold on, that's going to really piss off our customers. Don't do it. And maybe that person can offer a better way of doing it, like the Coca-Cola or the AMC example. Because too often you get engineers, economists, whatever, that run a company, they really care about the technical aspect of it. They invent something that is so much better than what we have, and no one uses it. Why? Because they are missing the behavioral part, the common sense part of it in many cases. And absolutely, in some cases, it's so simple that you really scratch your head exactly like you said. How come no one over there sat and said, wait a minute? People will not be happy about it. Before I go any deeper with how incentive schemes go awry, I'd like to have you give our audience a quick primer on the two different approaches to incentives. Can you do that? Sure. So I work at the business school here at UCSD. And in a business school, you can have the same types of something with incentives in the name of the class. And it's going to be extremely different depending on the teacher that teaches it, the professor that teaches it. So imagine uh, to take the class from a psychologist, organizational psychology. 
that professor will tell you how important it is to be engaged and how important it is that you love your job and that's why you're working. And then you go to the economist and the economist will tell you, no, it's all about paying the rent. You go to work because you want to get money. Now, of course, these two are extreme views that are not true, right? It's not, as all extreme views, it's just not there. It's somewhere in the middle. I go to work because I need to pay the rent. And because I want to be good at my job, I want to feel fulfilled, all the good stuff, right? So the combination. And the question that I try to answer in this book is how you can design the incentive such that it will pay the rent and will get you also feeling better about your job. And that's possible if you do it right. I don't know that I got that from the book. And I'm actually thrilled to hear that you say that. So I'm going to give you more floor here, if you will. Tell us more about that. So this dichotomy between the work is for money and to meet my basic needs for food, water, and shelter versus I'm here to fulfill myself and to make my life meaningful. If you had a third professor, how would that class be taught to do a both-end education? Uh, to control it can really help. Imagine that you go and donate blood. Uh, many people do it, and they do it because it makes them feel good about themselves, because they think that that's the right thing to do. Now, imagine that I'll pay you $50 for doing this. You will not be happy about that in many cases, because now you will not be sure whether you're doing it because you're a nice guy. And you will not maybe tell your friends about it because you think that instead of thinking that you're a good guy, they think that you're a cheap guy that does it for the money. Now, if you think about the incentives in a more creative way, you can find other incentives. For example, I can give you a coffee mug with the logo of the blood bank. Now, every morning when you'll drink your coffee, you'll say, wow, I'm a good guy. Look at me. I donated blood. And when other people will get into your office, you won't have to tell them, look, I'm a good guy. I donated blood. You can just drink your coffee and they will understand it by looking at your coffee mug. So that's an example how an incentive, instead of giving you $50, I can give you a $10 coffee mug that you probably don't need because you have others, but done correctly, it can really reinforce the signal that I want to send and that you want to send when you're doing the activity. So you're using language we haven't defined yet, which is signaling. So you're writing your book about social signaling and self-signaling, if I remember correctly. Tell us about both of those. You remember correctly. So social signaling is what, uh, what I want you to think about me. I'm going around the world. I'm doing things. Say that you come to walk near my house over here every morning, and I want you to think about me good things. So you'll see me recycling things maybe, or uh, you'll see me walking on the beach as well, whatever it is that I want to signal to this. And I also want to signal to myself, because in many cases, I don't really know how good of a person I am. And actually... I learn about it from my actions, right? So that's something that I learned. Let me give you a recycling example. Imagine that you see your neighbor in a cold morning walking to the recycle center with 100 soda cans. You'll probably say, wow, she's great. I really admire her for doing this. She could have thrown it to the garbage. She chooses to recycle it. She's great. Now imagine, she probably also, by the way, think about that about herself, that she's great because she is, she's caring about the environment. Now imagine that you live in a place where uh, your neighbor will get five cents for every soda can that she recycles. Now you look at her with 100 soda can and say, really, for $5? She must be cheap. Right? So the 
introduction of incentives really changed what she signals to you, the social signaling, because before that you thought she's doing it because the, she cares about the environment, and I think that she's doing it because she's cheap. And it can also change the way she feels about herself. So now she might say, well, for $5, it's not worth it, and decide to actually not recycle the soda cans. So the social signaling can really impact what you're doing. This is one of the most fascinating parts of your book. When I read this, I was like, oh, my goodness. So you tell the story 20 years ago, just for the history, when hybrid cars first appeared. Both Honda and Toyota were the first manufacturers to mass produce hybrid cars. But as you write about, only Toyotas succeeded. And we're talking about the Toyota Prius. Tell us why. So think about the early hybrid. At the beginning, they were really bad cars. What do I mean by bad cars? For the same price, you could have bought a much better car, more efficient in terms of engine, in terms of more safe, everything that you wanted. You could just buy a better car, which was actually great because the people that cared about the environment now could say, well, look at me, I'm driving this bad car. And the only reason is because I care about the environment. If you drive a Prius today, well, today it's a competitive car. You can drive it today because it's safe, reliable, all the good things that you want from a car. But that wasn't true back then. Back then, it was really a bad car. So by driving it, you really signaled that you care about the environment. Now, like you said, about the same time, both Toyota and Honda came with two cars. And Honda decided to follow the engineers and base its hybrid car on the Civic, the existing car that they had which made lots of sense because parts are easier this way. Everything is easier in the supply chain when you do it. And Toyota said, no, no, that's not the right way. We are going to redesign the car completely such that everyone will know that this is a hybrid car. And, you know, if you want to signal, if signaling is what you care about, the previous new design was really useful because now you don't have to tell people that you drive a hybrid car. They don't have to see the small plank that you have on the back of the car. Now, Everyone knows that this car is hybrid and probably Mark really cares about the environment if he chose to buy this one instead of a better, cheaper car. So the redesign of the Prius to be so distinct really had a great effect. And that was, by the way, it's not my analysis. The CEO of Honda said, look, we screwed up. Toyota won because they designed the car differently and got the message that they wanted well, what's so fascinating about that to me, so in your book, you said that 57% of people buying a Prius got it because it made a statement about them. So their desire for self-expression. So my takeaway in reading this was that buying a hybrid wasn't enough for people. They had to tell the world, I'm that person who just bought a hybrid car. So social signaling proves to be, like, that's very, very powerful. So the geniuses at Toyota understood this, and Honda clearly were just trying to make a good hybrid car and weren't thinking that people were motivated that way. So is social signaling involved in many other things that we buy? In many things, for sure. And by the way, if you think about it, it also, it's not good for everyone. So the redesign of the hybrid can't work on someone who drives a large pickup. Right? So if you're the pickup kind of person, you're not going to care about this. So the importance was that you really targeted the right people, the people that don't think that they buy a car in order to be cool 
or they buy a car in order to signal that they are rich. They need to think about the subgroup that you are targeting with this. And that was what they did. And for that reason, by the way, I cannot tell you what incentive will work in general. It really depends on the situation. It really depends on the culture in which you are. So in some cultures, it might be great. You asked about social signaling to drive a Maserati convertible would be a signal that you are rich and people will say, wow, that's great. And in other cases, bragging like this is frowned upon. And other cultures could say, look, we don't like you if you try to show off with your money. We know you're rich. You don't need to show off. Right? So you really need to tailor the signaling that you send to the right audience. That's very helpful insight. You didn't mention this in your book, but as I was reading it, it reminded me that years ago when Steve Ballmer was the CEO at Microsoft, that he launched a stack ranking based performance management scheme where only a small number of people could be judged as exceeding expectations or doing a great job. And if I recall, it was out of 10 people on a team, only four people could get that kind of praise and designation. And those people were not just applauded. They ended up getting bigger raises, bigger bonuses, more stock, all of that. And regardless of their performance, a certain number of employees on these teams were deemed low performing every year, which generally meant that they were fired. So there was real consequences for this. So because the scheme assumed that so few people could be winners, it didn't just fail to motivate performance, it influenced employees to compete with each other rather than collaborate. And in some cases, they were actually trying to sabotage one another. I mean, this couldn't have been a more flawed process as far as I'm concerned, but tell us about unintended consequences and how leaders might be able to test an incentive scheme like this to determine any downsides before they implement it. And that would include how employees actually end up trying to game it. There are many things in the Steve Palmer example, so let me try and unpack it. First of all, I think that I would like to be one of the winners in this and not just because of the money, not just because of the promotion. That's what we talked about before, the psychology versus economics of it. So the economics is clear. I'm going to get more money. I'm going to get promotion. Life is going to be better. But it's also a signal that I'm a good worker. And that's very important to me and I think that to many other people. That in itself is great. Now, the problem is that, and that's one of the things that I talk about in the book, is that Steve Palmer probably told his guys that, look, you need to work as a team. Cooperating is really important. But then the incentives that he designed sent the exact opposite message. It said, no, you should compete with each other. You should sabotage the other person. Your success is not measured by how much you contribute to Microsoft. It's measured by how much better you are than your colleagues. So why would I work as part of a team if I measured relative to others, right? So the entire concept of telling you that you should work as a team and it's really important, but then paying you based on individual incentives can backfire, right? So that's what happened in this case. In general, many people prefer to work in a more collaborative environment than one in which uh, you have extremes like that. How do you feel about making incentive plans where everyone can win? Doesn't necessarily mean you will win, but that the potential for everyone to win exists. So you need to think about it when you design the incentives, what you want to do. And it might be actually good to have a winner at the end of the day and because you really care about the outliers. So think about 
building your team and you can get Messi as your uh, player. Mm-hmm. Messi will come to play for you only if you'll really give him a lot of money. He will not come to play if he'll be paid the same as the defenders and the other players in the team. Right? So if you want to attract the absolutely best people, you might want to give them individual incentives to succeed. Right? So you might want to do it. It doesn't have to be relative to others. You can set some kind of goals that you tell them, look, you need to solve this problem. I can tell you in my case as an academic, I need to publish papers. Right? So when a young person, when we hire a rookie out of graduate school, we tell that person, look, you need to publish at least six papers and there's a set of journals that you have to publish in. So you set targets and you give high rewards for them. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you make it competitive, you need to understand what's going to happen. And in some cases, you might say, look, I don't care that it's going to hurt the teamwork. That's more important for me. In other cases, you'll say, no, I don't want to risk this. You really need to think about your goals. What is it that you care about? If you care about the performance of the entire team, then maybe this kind of competitive incentives is bad. But if you care about only the winner, only one person, That's really important. So you can think about an R&D race. In an R&D race, you really care only about the winner. Mm-hmm. The rest are not important. In education, you really care about the people that are behind also. So it's not just the best student. You also care about the worst student. Right? So you really need to think about what is it that you want? What are your goals? And then think about your incentives. Don't design the incentives and then complain that they don't meet your goals. So in a workplace, hiring a, a messy person, This is ironic, but his name is what strikes me as being a problem, which is that it gets messy when you overpay for one person relative to everyone else. But let's think about a traditional work environment. Let's say you're managing 10 dry cleaning stores and you have an expectation to the manager that they generate $100,000 in revenue per year. And so you've got 10 stores, 10 managers, and eight of those managers hits the $100,000 goal. Totally reasonable to pay all eight, right? I mean, you have eight winners. You don't have one big winner, but you're motivating eight of those 10 stores to achieve the very goal you're trying to achieve. Am I off base? No, no, you're not. What will happen in the real world probably is that next year you're going to raise the target. Instead mm-hmm. of 100, you'll say that it should be 120 or something like that. Mm-hmm. But, but absolutely, you care about each store's success. You don't need to compare them to each other. And in many cases, it's not going to be fair. So in some cases, there is another dry cleaner next to your store. And in other cases, you're the only store in the neighborhood. Right? So it's not clear that revenue should be compared that well, but I think that if you set a target and many of your sales force or your uh, dry cleaning, whatever it is, meet them, that's, that's great. You should be happy. Perfect. Another big takeaway from your book is that not only are we as leaders creating incentive plans to motivate our employees' behavior, but that people we interact with every day are doing the same to affect our behavior, something I think we lose sight of. But this is a distressing example that you used. You write that C-sections in the delivery of a baby have higher chances of maternal death, have a higher chance of infection, and carry longer recovery periods compared to traditional births. Noting this, tell us an important reason why any doctor would, and so many do, recommend that new mothers have a C-section delivery. I'm not a medical doctor, but I think that 
what the data says is that in some cases you really need to have a C-section. C-section is the only way to go for the safety of the mother and the child. That's easy. Those mm-hmm. are the easy cases. There are other cases in which you have a healthy pregnant person and it's easy and no need for C-section. Then you have some kind of gray area in which, well, you know, it's not clear. Maybe we should go with C-section. Maybe we shouldn't. And in these cases, that's where the incentive could really make an effect. And that's true, by the way, for other issues like back pain. And if we take a step back, we can see why it is a problem. Because in many cases, think about C-section or back surgeries, the hospital is being compensated much more for doing the operation than not doing it. So, Regular delivery actually takes longer than a C-section. And back surgery takes really short amount of time. And both C-section and back surgery are compensated very nicely by the insurance company. So the hospital want to have as many of them just from economic reasons. And they actually give incentives to the physicians to do it. So imagine that you're in a delivery room. If you deliver a baby in a regular delivery, you're going to get $500. And if you do a C-section, you're going to be paid $2,000. I'm making up the numbers, but I'm not sure that they're that far off. And it's going to be shorter when you do the C-section. Which one are you going to do? Pregnant person is coming in the gray area. Are you going to go with the regular delivery or the C-section? Of course you go with the C-section because you're compensated more for it. And you also got the signal from the hospital, that's what they expect you to do. Otherwise, why are they paying you more to do it? Another step back, that's one of the problems with the healthcare in the U.S. that doctors are paid based on fee-for-service, which means that the more you do, the more you're going to be paid. So if I send you to more scans, to more tests, I do more operations on you, I'm going to be paid more. And in many cases, you don't need them. So a situation in which, if you compare a hospital in which the doctor is not paid based on service, but paid based on something else, you see that those doctors prescribe much less tests, much less scans, much less interventions than doctors that are paid based on service. So it creates a really big problem of overusing the system. And of course, the system becomes more expensive and less healthy because like you started when you said, When you do the C-section, when it's not necessary, it comes with a cost. It's dangerous for the woman. It's bad for the recovery. It's bad for many things. So changing the incentives of doctor turns out to work really well. Now, if you ask doctors, are you doing it because of the incentives? They'll say, of course not. And they might actually believe it. But they say that we are really good at self-deceiving us about why we're doing what we're doing. And the same doctor would behave very differently under different incentives. Just curious, we have an audience in 163 countries, so this stood out to me as something that I wanted to discuss and make sure our audience heard from you. Is it uncharacteristic of most countries? Is it just specific to America where doctors are incentive to do surgeries that aren't necessarily necessary and may be harmful? So in many countries in the world, maybe in most countries of the world, there is some combination of this. So if you work in the public system, you're going to get your salary and you're going to work your shift and you'll do whatever is necessary to do it, which you can say is not very effective because you don't have incentives to actually see patients or treat them. But then you can say that that will come out of intrinsic motivation. We also have private care in which the doctors will be paid based on Surgeries. So for me, a really good system would be 
to go to a doctor for the diagnosis, a doctor that is paid per hour, that is not paid based on what he or she is going to prescribe to me, and then go to a different doctor, the best doctor I can find maybe, and I don't care if that doctor is paid, but for the decision what to do, and I wouldn't want to be facing a doctor that has incentives to perform as much as possible. In many places in the world, it's not like that. Even in the U.S., they try to move in some places to pay for performance. So if you were a doctor, you would be assigned, say, 50, 100 patients, whatever the number is, and you'll be compensated best based on how healthy they are. And that's a much harder, much trickier way of compensating you, but then I'm compensating you for the real thing. And that becomes important because now, under fee-for-service, the physicians are basically paid for treating you. They're not paid, for example, for prevention. I can talk about prevention, how important it is, and the president can talk about it. But if you go down to the details, there is almost no investment in prevention. And we know that the ROI on investing in prevention is so much higher than on treating. So if I can do things to you and prevent the disease from happening, that's great, but I'm not compensated for it. Why would I do it? The power of incentives. Well, you know, when you go into a hospital, if you needed surgery, would you be asking the doctor if they have any incentive to operate on you? I would definitely. So I had back problems and I was definitely asking for opinions. We had a friend who was a surgeon and we asked him. The problem was that he, like many of the other surgeons, you know, if you're a surgeon, you have that's the tool that you have and that's what you know how to do. Right. So in many cases, you'll get something best, but you, I would definitely do research. So I'll go and ask for a second opinion. I will try to read about it. I will definitely not just take the word of the doctor as what I need to do, which is a great problem because you want to trust your physician. That's the expert that mm -hmm. you're going to. Mm -hmm. And you want to be able, by the way, it's not just in medicine. When you take your car to a mechanic, the mechanic has all the incentives in the world to tell you that they have to replace something that you will never be able to know. You don't know whether they are right or not. It's kind of product that you have to trust the expert. And that's why trust is so important in this kind of relationship. So I believe that I found a general practitioner that is actually someone that I can trust. And I will always go back to him if someone else will tell me to do some procedure, for example. I will go and, and ask him. I'm lucky to have such a physician. Not everyone does, but that's what I would do. In your book, you describe an incentive plan where employees are given the bonus up front. So let's just say you make $50,000 a year and we're going to give you a $10,000 bonus if you achieve X, Y, and Z. But rather than wait until the end of the year where they achieve X, Y, and Z and they get their $10,000 bonus, they give the bonus to the person and then take it away from them in the event that they don't achieve X, Y, and Z. Is that a scheme you recommend? Is this something that you've seen in business? So yes, I've seen it in businesses, and it's based on something that maybe some of your listeners will know, which is called the loss aversion. The, the observation that if you lose something, it's more painful than gaining something of the same sort. So if you lose $10, you feel worse about it than if you win $10. And the idea over here with the incentive scheme that you mentioned with the pay scheme is that I'll pay you up front. Now you're going to say, okay, that's my money. I'm not being paid $50,000. I'm being paid $60,000 in your example. I got this $10,000 bonus. And now I'm going to work much harder in order not 
to have to return it at the end of the year because they didn't meet the targets that to get the bonus. That's much more painful. Returning the money at the end of the year is going to be much more painful because now you feel that it's yours. The money is yours to lose. Whereas if I just tell you, if you perform that well, I'm going to give you $10,000 at the end of the year, that's not yours yet. If you don't reach it, you don't feel the same type of loss that you do if you got it at the beginning. So this seems to be working very strongly on people. But does it end up like the Coca-Cola example where people end up getting really close to hitting X, Y, and Z and don't, and then have to write the company a $10,000 check? Don't they end up hating their company for that? Well, if you need to get a check at the end of the year from your employee, it's not going to be pleasant. There's no way of making this pleasant. So that's definitely something bad about this. And you need to be credible about it, by the way. So if you do it, you need to be credible and actually collect the $10,000 at the end of the year. That's not going to be nice. And by the way, like many other incentive schemes, you mentioned the competitive incentives before, you might get different people working for you. So I might be the kind of person that says, look, I don't want to work in a cutthroat kind of environment so competitive, so it will not come to work for your company. Or that person will say, look, I don't want to live with the potential loss of this. I will be so stressed about it. I will feel so bad about it. I don't want to do it. Right? So that could be another cost of this. So you need to think about it and test it, see what works. But you are in favor of it knowing that you might have to ask people to give you a very substantial amount of money back. So in general, I'm not in favor or against the incentive scheme. It really depends on what is it that you want to achieve. If you want very competitive people that are willing to risk things, then go for it. That's the right thing to do. If you want some people that are more conservative and really want to know in advance how much they're going to make, maybe even a bonus is not the right thing for them. So it really depends on what is it that you want to achieve. And that's one of the messages of the book that, Mm -hmm. look, the incentives are going to send a signal. They're going to select the people that are going to come to you. Make sure that you are designing them in the right way. There are no good or bad incentives. There are good incentives for this situation and bad incentives for this situation because they send a certain message that you don't necessarily stand behind. Let's say your goal as a senior HR leader is to motivate all of your organization's managers to adopt a cultural change and to start performing a new list of behaviors, including giving their employees more regular coaching and checking in with them more frequently for a well-being check. Let's just say that's the new behavior that you want your 500 managers across the company to implement. How would you ideally incent that kind of behavior? So imagine that in this company, everyone is paid per performance, their own performance. It's going to be very hard to convince these people to actually help in mentoring new employees, which I think is what you're saying. You're saying that you want to change the culture to such that there'll be more mentoring. Mentoring is usually not compensated. It's very hard to measure and it's very hard to compensate. So if I'm going to be measured by how many lines of codes I write or how many cars I sell or whatever, I'm not going to be willing to do mentoring. So if you want to change this culture, you really have to change the incentives also. You can tell people, look, until now you got paid only per performance, only based on, say, the quantity that you produced. Now we're also going to add another dimension to this, mentoring. Each one of you will be assigned to a new person. And each one of you will be responsible for the success of that person and maybe even incentivize based on the performance of this new employee. 
So imagine that we just hired you to the company and I'm assigned to mentor you. I can be paid based on your performance for the coming year. That would be an example in which I really try to change the incentives from just paying you based on your success and the success of the people that you mentor. And so if you want to make such a change, you need to think about elements like that. How do you do that in a non-sales environment, though? In other words, if I'm selling cars and now I'm expected to mentor you, you can then give me an incentive tied to how many cars you end up selling. So that's clear. But let's say that we just work in a normal office environment and you're a manager and you've got a team of 10 people and I've never really asked you to coach and, and really mentor people. And I want that behavior to occur throughout my organization. So this is a less clean situation than the one that you described, but is there a way for an organization to create some incentives so that people, i.e. managers, will get out of the discomfort or out of the habit of not mentoring and embrace it as something that becomes the new behavior for the organization? Is there a way to incent that? The environment that you described is an environment in which it's very hard to pay per performance because I, I can't really judge your performance. It's much harder. And because of that, I cannot pay you based on the performance of the person that you just helped. But I can have some kind of evaluations at the end of the year. And that's where if you want incentives that are contingent on some kind of behavior, you need to have a way to evaluate people. Many of these uh, workplaces have points that you need to check on them. And you can say how many sales they had, that's easy to do. Or you can have how many times you were absent, how many customers complained about you, and how many people did you mentor and how successful these people were. You need to have some kind of metrics of success, which every company has, even if it's not directly based on objective measures like sales, you can still have parameters that are used. And you can really make one of the parameters, how many successful new employees did you actually mm -hmm. mentor? So you need to factor it in to the incentive scheme just because doing that, you really signal that that's something important. And you can give people, say, some, some nice bonuses if they do it. So if you mentor this person, you get free lunches to take them once a week to lunch to make sure that they actually are on schedule to learn everything. So I can pay you for a nice lunch every week for 10 weeks to do this. That's a kind of incentive to do it. And think about ways to actually reward it, not just because of the reward, but also because of the signal that the reward sends that you really care about it. I love that. That's really fantastic. Thank you. That's really great. Everyone, I'd like to take an early break in my conversation with Yuri to make a special announcement. Over the years, when I've spoken at organizations or conferences, people have routinely asked me if I had any way of reinforcing everything they just heard in my presentation. In other words, they wanted specific training they could take themselves or give to their managers to deeply reinforce the lead from the heart philosophy. And until now, all I could do was offer my book. But today, I'm announcing that I have finally produced the lead from the heart training course, and it's really wonderful. Part of the reason it's wonderful is because I partnered with Get Lighthouse, a training development company with many years of experience and expertise. And over the years, I've come to be close with its CEO, Jason Evanish. And so for the past few months, I've been working very closely with Jason to create the class. And he could not be more aligned to the leaf and the heart philosophy or determined to create something great. 
So now that the self-study online course is ready, you could be part of the first leaders to try it out. This is your chance to get step-by-step -step specific advice on the most important ideas we talk about on this podcast. During the program, you and your employees will receive bite-sized lessons once per week for 12 weeks. So if you can spare 20 minutes a week to improve as a leader, then this is the course for you. Best of all, you'll be able to ask me questions that I'll be answering during the program, and I'll be soliciting your feedback to make this an amazing course. But only if you sign up to join us now as the program starts on Tuesday, April 11th. So you got to move fast to get in the pilot. You can learn more about the program and sign up to join us at leadfromtheheart.getlighthouse.com. Again, to join us for the Lead from the Heart course or to get more information, please go to leadfromtheheart.getlighthouse.com. And if you get confused, you can always reach out to me. But if you're listening to this after April 11th, go to the site anyway to sign up for announcements on all future opportunities to take the course. When I had CEO Bob Chapman on my podcast recently, he told me that leaders really want to lead from the heart. They just don't know how. And that really stuck with me. So now that we've built a practical way of teaching managers the skills they really need, we can finally solve that problem. So I hope you'll consider joining us for the launch. It's going to be great. And now back to the show. Yuri, we're going to stop here for a moment and move into what we call the heartbeat round to help us learn about you more personally. I'm going to ask you several questions that we want you to answer instinctively and quickly. In other words, cleverly in a heartbeat. Are you game? Um, we'll see. <laughs> All right. Not as ambitious as I had hoped, but that's okay. Here we go. Uh, okay. <laughs> I'm kidding. First app in the morning you check. My email. Quality you consider most essential to your success. Innovation, being creative. What should be required reading for every human alive? My book. Nah. Uh, gotta, no. You got to do better. Got to do better than that. That's a tricky question. Uh, <laughs> pass. Your synonym for the word heart. Not doing harm. Making sure that no one is being hurt by what you're doing. Your personal mantra or motto. If it's not interesting to you, don't do it. The economist of any era you most respect and quickly, why? George Akerlof, because his stuff is really simple and insightful. One thing people would be surprised to learn about you. That I wear only black t-shirts. Really? It's very efficient. I don't have to think about it. My coach, Marshall Goldsmith, wears a green shirt every single day of his life and khaki pants. And I think Mark Zuckerberg does the same thing. So it's very efficient. You're right. Here you go. A piece of advice you'd give your younger self. Smile more often. The world's greatest problem needing fixing. Oh, that's hard. Uh, fake news, uh, the environment, racism, those three. Newspaper or magazine you never miss reading? The New York Times. Quality that derails the most leadership careers? Losing focus on why they're there and just focusing on superficial targets, goals. If you could teach every workplace leader in the world just one thing, what would it be? Common sense. Can you teach common sense? It's a good question. I don't know. <laughs> a cultural value every organization should have. Respect everyone around them, the employees, first of all, and your clients. 
And your level of optimism in our ability to tame inflation, since that's a big issue right now. I'm not that kind of an economist, so I don't know. You want to weigh a guess? It will happen. You know, it comes with cycles. Inflation will be tamed. The question is the cost. Uh, let's hope that the cost will not be too high. Wonderful. Thank you for going through this with me. I really appreciate it, Yuri. These are very interesting answers. Thank you. We've covered a lot of ground related to your book, Yuri, but is there something really important that I neglected to bring up, or is there an idea from it that you want leaders, especially in our audience, pondering once this discussion is over? Like we said before, the thing to remember is, first of all, have common sense when you design the incentive. Think about the signals that you send with them. Don't just say, I'll pay you. Think about what are you telling your people that care about? Don't neglect that. That's the first aspect. And the second one is, Use data and keep learning. So design your incentive, test how they work. If it works perfectly, which it never does, that's great. If not, take it back to the workshop. Think about ways to improve it and go back. And once you find the right incentives, don't stop there because people are going to learn how to game your incentives in many cases. So make sure that it's a dynamic process in which you keep trying to improve and react to how your target audience is reacting to it. Do you have a problem with companies or leaders frequently changing their incentives? So along the lines of what you just said, I create a scheme and I find out it doesn't really get what I want. Or I was blindsided by some outcome that I didn't see coming and I want to correct so now I'm going to make a change to the plan, but I got to go out to people and communicate it and they have to understand it. And it's substantial enough that's disruptive. Is that okay? As long as you're transparent, it's okay. So you need to tell your people, look, I wanted you to produce more and we got that, but our quality suffered. So that's why I just added a couple of measures of quality to this. I tweaked the incentives such that it's not just the quantity, but it's also the quality that I care about. So, for example, think about Uber drivers. They are compensated per rider that they have, so the more they work, the better it is. But on top of that, they also get the ratings from their riders. And if the driver will get too low ratings, they will be kicked out of the system. So now you added another dimension to this that maybe you didn't think about it in advance, but you really improved it. And as long as you are transparent with your employees and you tell them, look, we tried that, here's what happened, that was the problem, no worries, we thought about a way to solve this, and that's what we are suggesting to do. I think that as long as you do that, a very transparent approach, it should work. I don't see a problem with that. Wonderful. Very insightful. Thank you so very much for joining us. I'm sorry we didn't get to do this in person and hope we get to meet in person one day. But on behalf of my audience, Yuri, thank you so very much. Thank you. It was great. Before we say goodbye, I am thrilled to announce that a special paperback version of Lead from the Heart has just been released in India and is available there wherever books are sold. I want to thank the people who helped me succeed, including Mr. Ken Boynton, Carrie Finnessy, Randy Yant, Anna Boynton, Susan DeRoche, and my wonderful producer, Eric Goss. And finally, I leave you with my two constant reminders. When you lead from the heart, your people will follow and love your people. This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you for listening, thanking you for introducing us to your friends, and signing off for now. Mm-hmm.